Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. You know, over 90% of... Uh veterans and the research that I have that I have found identify as having a religious faith. Um, and with that, over 90 percent of those say that they would like that, like the opportunity to be able to discuss their spiritual and religious struggles in counseling. So one of the one of the, the huge, hugest things that I found, though, is that oftentimes counselors are either a um, they're ill-equipped to to help you know help uh clients work through those struggles or they're unsure of how to deal with those struggles you know they're unsure of um you know how do how do you incorporate this into session but i think one of the key points is to keep in mind is that when we do biopsycho uh psychosocial and i often say spiritual assessments is that we can't leave that piece of the person out of treatment because they, the, the spiritual piece is, is a part of who they are. Welcome to the Change Your POV podcast. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes of veteran mental health. I'm your host, Dwayne France. Let's get ready to make sure that your headspace and timing is set correctly. Hey everybody, welcome to Headspace and Timing. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for checking us out. As many of you who serve know, the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal, is one of the greatest weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing isn't set right, however, it's just a huge chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my mission here, to raise awareness about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week we'll talk about different aspects of veteran mental health and interview mental health professionals that are working with veterans, service members, and their families around the country. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing Show, a show where we're trying to change the way that you think about veteran mental health. Uh, I often say that we have a special guest on the show, uh, but today is a very special guest because uh, Danette Patterson is someone that I very literally consider my mentor. Uh, much of the things that I've been able to accomplish have been uh, at uh, Danette's guidance or prodding, maybe, or um, encouragement. So, uh, And I think that uh, we may definitely get into the need for mentorship um, for for all professions, uh, but how important it is for veterans. Uh, but uh, I think that Danette has a very unique perspective about veteran mental health that uh, that you'll probably enjoy. So Danette, welcome to the show. 
Thank you so much, Dwayne, and thank you for that lovely introduction. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for the the last uh, really couple years uh, of encouragement. I mean, it's um, it's it's all, always important to have someone, and and I kind of knew that before to have someone as far as guidance and, and mentorship, but uh, really to have the experience to help you grow. So. Um, I, I really appreciate everything that you've done for me personally and, uh, and also for coming on the show to share what uh, you know with, uh, with the guests here. Okay. So uh, I'd like to maybe start out telling the audience a little bit about yourself and um, sort of uh, your background. Okay, so um, I'm a licensed professional counselor. Um, prior to becoming a licensed professional counselor, I was also a uh, licensed practical nurse. So I've been in the healthcare field for about 20 years. I'm a former um, Army spouse of over 20 years as well. Um, I currently work um, with the Military and Family Life Counseling Program, and I've provided services for service members, spouses, and veterans through this program about 10 years. Um, prior to that, I had a private practice in um, San Antonio, and everyone knows that as Military Town USA. And so the bulk, if not maybe 98% of my private practice was veterans, um, active duty service members and their families. And so, um, so a lot of my research interests um, as well as my clinical work is around the military culture and um, how can we better serve the military culture as a whole. Yeah, and I, I think that obviously you and I have had a lot of conversations about cultural competence and the need to learn that military culture, but uh, some of the guests um, that I've had on as professional counselors were service members themselves, like myself, um, but uh, but I don't know that I've had a military spouse on before, but you have a perspective of the military culture um, that those who haven't served with or, or served themselves, that they probably don't have. How do you think your experience as a military spouse had helped you in your your counseling profession? Well, I think it helped me in a great uh, a great deal, particularly um, as a military spouse, you know, I could say that um, I'm typically not a traditional military spouse. And what I mean by that is that I've worked throughout our entire military career. So the, the, a lot of the engagement in the FRG meetings and um, a lot of the you know on installation activities very early on in our career, I wasn't a part of that. And so even though I was providing service, um, let's say in a military hospital, as a nurse, I still wasn't really a part of the culture because I was more or less kind of separated from the culture doing, you know, forming my own identity, if you will. Um, I don't think it wasn't, it wasn't until I actually uh, got into counseling when I really, and this was about 10 years after being a spouse for 10 years, I really started to understand the military culture as a whole. Um, when, because, you know, when, when your spouse comes home, they give you little bits and pieces. <laughs> they don't give you the whole story. And so oftentimes you're like putting the puzzle, the pieces of the puzzle together. And at that point, you know, we're, we're moving on to, to a whole nother new activity. And so I don't think it was, like I said, until I actually start working, um, working particularly at uh, ACS Army Community Service. And really sitting down, talking to service members, um, you know, talking to individuals who've been working with service members for decades that I actually begin to understand the military culture as a whole and what my role was 
honestly, as a military spouse. Yeah, I think that's interesting that you talked about. Um, I, I don't think as a, a service member I did it intentionally, but we don't we don't give everything. We don't explain everything, I guess, to, to our uh, family members, and that leaves some gaps to just kind of try to figure out on your own mm-hmm. or not figure out on your own, um, a way to engage more or, or even, you know, not engage, I guess, in that military culture. Absolutely. You know, um, you know, now, prior to, I want to say maybe 2000, you know, you can go into ACS as a military spouse. They would sit down with you and they would, you know, give you some of the training as a spouse on the acronyms of the military, the ranks of the military, et cetera. Now everything is streamlined online. Um, and that's just the way of the 21st century. But oftentimes I find that when I'm speaking to spouses, even in my in counseling sessions, very new um, spouses, they're far, they're even unaware that they have these options to take these courses online as well to understand the culture. So I think a huge piece of it is, is that um, one, you know, the engagement, you know, wanting to know more about what is it that my spouse does, right? And then the second piece is, okay, how do I get access to this information so that we can have this viable conversation together. No, I think that's really great. And it's something that um, as a, a professional counselor for veterans more specifically, um, I know that I never really considered that until uh, maybe about uh, eight months or a year ago, I was invited to participate in a group uh, for military spouses that, that answered those kind of exact questions is, you know, what does it mean? You know, what, what does this mean? What does that mean? Um, because it, I, the spouses found it a lot easier to ask me than to ask their husbands these kind of things. They're able to ask these questions of, well, you know, why does he, you know, look a certain way when a sound goes, you know, whatever. Um, but also it was easier for me to express to them maybe than it would have been to express to my own wife. And so it's, I had, I didn't have a lot of, um, you know, emotional con- connection to these spouses other than my respect and their appreciation for what they did. Um, but it was it was a place for them to go get their questions answered without having to ask their spouse. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's important, particularly um, as a counselor, doing the, providing the psychoeducation piece, you know, outside of just understanding the acronyms and the terminology and the rank. But just, you know, being able to provide the psychoeducation in terms of, you know, what does this mean that your spouse now has some hyperarousal? You know, what does this, you know, what, what, are these, what do these terms look like and how can you be of better support when we're looking at different areas that doesn't necessarily translate into, uh, tra- you know, TBI or doesn't translate into PTSD, but you do know that there is a shift in personality, there's a shift in responses. And so providing that psychoeducation to the spouses, I think is um, paramount in helping with um, moving the treatment forward. No, and, and uh, as, as you well know, um, you know, I, I have my own uh, thoughts and opinions about things that go beyond PTSD and TBI and understanding those kind of things. Uh, and, and like you said, it's the psychoeducational, but it's just trying to get the information out there. Mm-hmm. So you uh, not just are, are working with uh, or, or having the lived experience of the military spouse, but um, you work with the, the INFLIC program, the Military Family Life Counselor, mm-hmm. how, whatever the acronym is. <laughs> um, 
But uh, in, in, in I've seen uh, Inflix uh, here at Fort Carson uh, do some really good work, but uh, maybe not a lot of people, um, maybe uh, definitely civilian counselors um, or, or maybe people that have gotten out uh, the military a while back, they're not familiar with this program. So can you talk about that real quick? Yeah, just real quickly. So um, with the Military and Family Life Counseling Program, we provide non-medical counseling and so even though we're all licensed therapists, whether we're uh, licensed clinical social workers, licensed marriage family therapists, or even licensed professional counselors, we're contracted um, by a separate contract that's contracted through OSD, okay? So there's a lot of contracts before you actually get to us. But needless to say, one of the pieces that I think um, uh, service members as well as spouses enjoy about the program is that our services are not are, are confidential and we're confidential to the fact that we don't take down any notes or any records of our sessions. So our sessions, um, you know, can be non-traditional in the sense that they can be two minute sessions or they can be up to two hours. So we can extend um, some time often that oftentimes you may not get, you know, in a traditional chair. One of the other pieces about our program is that not only do we provide services to active duty members, but also to the Reserve and National Guard, and also for um, individuals who've gotten out of the military and their families within six months of uh, separation. So we're there for uh, those as well. So it sounds very similar to Military One Source um, that, uh, that many active duty members uh, have access to where they're able to um, reach out to Military One Source and actually receive counseling uh, or therapy uh, on the community off base at no cost, whereas the inflicts are typically assigned to a unit or embedded in a particular unit, right? Absolutely. And so what, what we find the difference between the two programs is that the service members, the families, they get to know us. So we're able to build a, a rapport um, because we do attend FRG meetings, we, you know, um, attend, you know, change of commands, you know, we're out at family days, we're out at different events. So people are connected with who we are. They see us on the installation. And so after a while, once you begin to build that rapport, you're, you know, you're seeing them at, in the dining facility, you're seeing them at the gym, you know, those different places. We have a tendency for people to reach out more to us because they've developed more of an informal relationship with us. So that helps build um, rapport a lot quicker. Another piece is that being on the installation, our uh, reputation gets around. <laughs> so so you'll have someone who says, you know, hey, you know, you were able to provide a certain level of support or you were very effective with, uh, you know, my neighbor and, and his wife. And so I'm going to pass your card on to someone else. So with us, um, they have a little bit more direct approach. Um, with us, but the programs are, are pretty, pretty similar in that. Um, I will say that Military One Source is a really good uh, place for resources, community resources. And so I often will, because outside of counseling, they provide a lot of um, information on helping individuals with jobs, schools, you know, moving, all of that stuff that comes along with the PC, PCS. And so we work pretty well with Military One Source and will often refer individuals for them with using their resources as well. See, and that's great. Uh, and, and this, uh, you know, maybe a little bit a mini soapbox here, a very small one is uh, it's great that the resource is there for active duty or for um, those that are currently serving or, or, you know, even past six months. But, 
you know, if somebody got out of uh, the Marine Corps in 2005, they don't have that. Um, there's there's very few similar resources for veterans, um, you know, whether even through the VA or through state programs or things like that. So um, I always try to, to focus the, the work that I do, especially through the nonprofit, is to say that we're trying to develop a similar thing for veterans that the active duty service members or those that are currently serving have. Absolutely, yeah. Now, uh, also, you recently, um, you, you recently got your PhD. Congratulations! Yeah. This was, Thank uh, you. I, I think, uh, I was, I, I was doing something earlier today preparing for this, and it's, it's been uh, months, right? Just a couple of months. Well, actually, probably about six weeks. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, not quite too much yet. <laughs> so, uh, so congratulations. That, thank you. But the um, but but I'm very interested in in hearing your your topic of research. I know that you and I, again, having talked a bit, and uh, and we helped you out by promoting um, the uh, the the research uh, on the Headspace and Timing blog. I, I was able to do that and, and get that out there. But uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about your dissertation and some of the stuff that you found. Yeah. Well, before I begin, I do want to thank you once again for um, for posting that on on your site, because we got quite a bit of response from that. And so I really appreciate it. It really helped move the um, research forward. And so the title of my dissertation was looking at the impact of religion and spirituality on the reintegration needs of women veterans. And one of the primary um, reasons why I focused on women veterans in particular is because there's a lot of literature um, out on um, uh, male veterans and, and how they adjust to uh, civilian life. But when you look at the literature and you comb through the literature, you'll find that less than about 5% of the, the uh, participants are women. And so that kind of, and then I really say that because when I look at, when I looked at a lot of the literature, you would find like, you know, let's just say, uh, you know, there was a hundred participants. And so five of them were women. Or if you did a qualitative study, you know, they would be like 20, 20 participants and two of them would be women. So it was a very low percentage of, um, of the, the female voice in the reintegration. And so what I found is that there was a need to explore this a little bit more in detail because um, one of the biggest things that are that is kind of paramount for reintegration is that um, support system. And this has been found since, you know, World War II all the way up through OIF, OEF veterans is that having that group support is like the number one peer support, number one thing that helps veterans move forward. And so oftentimes uh, throughout the literature, I found that women reported not having um, that level of peer support, particularly when they go to the VA. Um, you know, they would find that uh, they would be, you know, one of two women in a group setting. Um, and so in that level of peer support, they didn't feel co as comfortable as sharing. Um, sometimes, you know, I've re read a lot of reports where women felt as if they weren't recognized as a veteran, um, more or less kind of seen as a second class veteran. So they would go to the VA and, uh, you know, say, well, it's great to see that you're supporting your your spouse. Right. Um, and that type of thing. And so that so in that they, you know, decide not to go to the VA. Oftentimes they would seek um, outside clinicians um, for additional support or community health agencies as opposed to utilizing the VA 
so that they can get that support that they need. And so one of the things that I looked at when looking at uh, religion and spirituality in particular is because what we found through our research is that um, oftentimes religion and spirituality, you know, they're two separate constructs, but they can be also intertwined. And so we found that um, individuals who typically have a religious or a spiritual base can often transition or use that as a strong coping mechanism during stressful events. And so one of my uh, ideas of looking at women veterans and the use of um, impact in religion was, is this, is this used as a successful supplement, if you will, due to the lack of group support that they have? You know, what's, what's actually, for them to be successful, what, what, what's that building block, if you will? What's, what's kind of like um, standing in the gap of not being able to actually have that that formal support um, that most male veterans have. So I, I see. I, I think that uh, if the the female veteran did not feel as connected uh, relationally to a peer group, uh, could a a deep spiritual or religious connection replace that in supporting transition? Absolutely, because you know one of the things we look at with the religious. Um, support uh, those individuals who may score, you know, having high religiosity is that, you know, they have not only a connection to a higher power, but they also have a tendency to have a connection to a group because they're interacting, whether it's, you know, through service, through prayer, um, but they're actually connecting with others within that religious organization. Uh, You know, one of the pieces with the spirituality is that the spirituality gives you that sense for a need of uh, meaning and purpose. And oftentimes we find for veterans across the board, whether it be male or female, is that meaning and purpose is one of the first things that um, is difficult in the transition from uh, military to civilian life. And so I wanted to capture those two elements as separate variables to see how they, you know, correlated with um, women's healthy transition. So, so in, and you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I've talked about it before. Um, again, as you know, that's that's part of one of the uh, aspects of veteran mental health for me that go beyond PTSD and TBI is that existential aspect of it. You know, how do we find meaning and purpose? And um, and I I talk about it nearly daily with the veterans that I work with, and it's it's such a, a common thing. How did you how did you measure that? How did you kind of uh, understand the the meaning and purpose and and you know the lack of it uh, in transitioning veterans, maybe in general or women veterans in particular? Well, one of the things is that um, this was a quantitative study, and so um, we used or I used, so to speak, three instruments. Well, one instrument was just a basic demographic questionnaire. And then um, I used the RCI, which is the Religious Commitment Inventory by Worthington. And that that's like a very short survey, about 10 questions. And um, individuals who measure about, I want to say, 35 or higher are considered highly religious. So it asks you about your activity as far as, um, you know, reading books with your religious activity, attending um, services, those type of things, things that would say that you're actively involved in in that. That's that religious commitment. Um, The second tool I used was the spiritual connection questionnaire. Now, this questionnaire was 
a little long. <laughs> so I think that's where some of my participants kind of fell off a little bit because it was 48 questions to that. Um, this is by Wheeler and Highland. And in that, that's where, where the questions was really asked about the spiritual connection. And so looking at not only, um, you know, are you uh, connected to a force higher than yourself? But do you have a sense of connection to other people? Do you have a sense of connection to nature, to your environment? So those kind of questions was kind of asked to measure um, the spirituality piece. And then the last questionnaire I used was the military to civilian questionnaire um, by Sayer. And I strongly recommend this questionnaire to be used not just for research purposes because it was developed uh, for research um, as well as for clinicians to use in their practice. And so with that military to civilian questionnaire, um, anyone you can pull it up online, it's a free questionnaire to, to, to utilize that was developed um, uh, through a research by the VA, um, but it's by uh, Sayer. So it's, it's commonly known as the M2CQ, so military to civilian questionnaire. And it's a very short questionnaire, but what it does is it captures the veterans um, the veterans experience within the past 30 days and their connection to their community, their connection to themselves, um, if they're having any difficulties on the job, if they're having any diff difficulties with school, if they attend school with their spouses. And then one of the questions on the military civilian questionnaire also captures their sense of meaning and purpose. And so um, what I was able to do was to look at um, if a correlation actually existed between religiosity and successful civilian reintegration, and if a correlation existed between spirituality and successful uh, civilian reintegration for these women. Now that's great. Of course, I'm going to find that and I'm going to put that in the show notes so listeners can uh, can can take that themselves. I wasn't even aware of that. Uh, so we, we learn something new every day. Um, so I, I guess uh, just in general, what did you find? So what was interesting is so we had 81 um, respondents to, to the survey. Um, however, we had about 40, 40 of those answered um, questions related to religiosity and um the reintegration and then we had around about 30 so answered questions related to spirituality so it's interesting that some individuals chose not to do the spirituality questionnaire but we had quite a few more that chose to do the religiosity uh, questionnaire i thought that was pretty interesting um one of the things that we found though is that um with spirituality so as individuals scored higher on spirituality they also had increased difficulty in reintegration. Hmm. I know. Yeah. <laughs> that's I what mean, I that's, said. Maybe that's a, that's a little counterintuitive. I mean, uh, having having faith and and you know spirituality separate from religiosity, but but um, I guess I would think that having more faith in a higher power, a higher spirituality, would lead to more uh, to an easier transition. But that's not what you found. That's not what I found. And that's what I thought I would find. Right. But that's, that's not what I found, because one of the reasons why I thought I would find that is because religiosity requires to some degree that you're actively involved in an organized religion. 
where spirituality is more um, independent, individuality, you know, and it doesn't necessarily require that. And so I thought for individuals who kind of feel a sense of out of place, you know, in the civilian world and then trying to figure out um, who they are as veterans, that the spirituality, that if they had a higher level of spirituality, in fact, that they would have um, a healthier reintegration. But that was not the case. Um, I think one of the primary reasons when I as I look at the research is looking at the impact of moral injury. Because the individual can, you know, consider themselves highly spiritual. However, if they have um, endured a moral injury in the sense that they're questioning their spirituality or they're questioning their belief system, then I think they would have more difficulty in dealing with certain areas of reintegration as well, particularly as it pertains to the meaning and purpose. Yeah, that that makes uh, sense. Um, I I was going to ask about if you found um, maybe some respondents who maybe at one point had greater connection to spirituality, but through their deployments, I I guess in a lot of these you focus specifically on uh, recently separated female veterans. So OIF, OEF, OND veterans. Um, Mm -hmm. Was there that, that uh, I've heard that from, from my clients to say, you know, I I went into the deployment thinking about things one way and came out and, and, and maybe lost some faith. Right. So, yes, as you mentioned, we focused on women who um, recently separated from the military within the past two years. Um, But one of the things is that because this was a quantitative study and not a mixed methods, um, those specific questions uh, was something that I would have asked if I had a qualitative portion to that and be able to compare those results. That's something I'm thinking, definitely looking at for future research, because those elements, when you think about moral injury and you think about, you know, how many, um, uh, not not only how many deployments you've been on, but what type of deployments you've you've been to, you know, how does that impact that um, that reintegration? Is some of the questions that needs that you need to sit down and actually ask the participant one on one, and so that's for future research. So, (laughs) but. (laughs) <laughs> the next PhD, right? That's yeah, your next... yeah. No, just the next next research. <laughs> so, uh, but is that a sense of something that you've gotten from veterans that you've worked with? Because I I do have that uh, with veterans that I work with. They say they grew up in a a, a faith based household or a, a church going, and then and then as young adults do go away from it, um, just typically, uh, not just veterans. Um, but then the experience of combat really making them question their faith in God uh, or the higher power or their spirituality. So is that something you've experienced, I guess, anecdotally with some of the clients you've worked with? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I have experienced that quite a bit. And I've even found that, um, you know, working with the chaplain has been has has been significant in, in the work that I do because oftentimes even though individuals will go in um, to meet with the chaplain and they'll say to the chaplain you know hey look this is where I was you know this is where my my spiritual and religious place was I'm not there anymore you know I don't want you to pray with me and they'll do the chat they'll give the chaplain all of this stuff right um, and then the chaplain, well, I've had chaplains that want to kind of co-counsel with me at times um, because 
the soldier may trust the chaplain more than he trusts the counselor. But I think the chaplain under some, I've worked with chaplains that understand that there's a need to bring both elements in the, the counseling as well as the spiritual spirituality, because, you know, you can very well see that there was some moral injury as a result of things that were seen, things that was done, their belief systems were shaken up a little bit. And so, um, so have, I think being able to collaborate with chaplains when you do have um, service members that come in or soldiers, veterans that come in with um, with some level of moral injury along with other uh, mental health components. I think it's really good that you can, if you can collaborate with, with someone um, from a clerical side to kind of help support you and support them along that way. You know, and I think that this can also be something uh, for um not those that are, you know, like yourself that are working with current service members, but former service members too, uh, is, is connecting with a, a faith leader in the community. Um, there have been times where, uh, in the past where I've worked, uh, the, the pastor of my church has reached out to me and said, you know, Hey, can you come in and, and talk to this, uh, men mostly at uh, the, the times that I've worked, um, because they say, you know, yes, we can do uh, pastoral counseling or, or faith-based counseling, but there's other things here um, that uh, that that maybe a, a more secular counselor or, or worldly, not worldly, but you know, but but someone less faith and more psychological based, uh, mm-hmm. but working in tandem um, with community faith leaders could help. Uh, I, I think that this, the, the spiritual aspect or the faith aspect of a veteran's mental health, when we talk about veteran mental health, it's not often talked about. Mm-mm. Not at all. And you know what I found, though, because um, I, I was looking through the literature with the collaborations with um, chaplains and with, uh, like I said, those in the faith-based community. And what I found um, through literature is that you know, over 90 percent of uh, veterans in the research that I have that I have found identify as having a religious faith. Um, and with that, over 90 percent of those say that they would like that, like the opportunity to be able to discuss their spiritual and religious struggles in counseling. So one of the one of the, the huge hugest things that I found though is that oftentimes counselors are either a um, they're ill-equipped to to help you know help uh, clients work through those struggles or they're unsure of how to deal with those struggles you know they're unsure of um, you know how do how do you incorporate this into sessions. But I think one of the key points is to keep in mind is that when we do biopsychosocial uh, and I often say spiritual assessments is that we can't leave that piece of the person out of treatment because that the spiritual piece is, is a part of who they are. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, uh, and, and I'll make a link to this in the, the show notes too, but I, I wrote an article uh, probably uh, well over a year ago now uh, but talking about how to find balance in a veteran's post-military life, uh, physical wellness, of course, maintaining a level of physical wellness, mental wellness as far as like cognitions and thoughts, emotional wellness um, as far as moods and, and uh, emotions. Uh, but then the fourth column that I had was spiritual wellness. And, and if you, you're very high on, on physical wellness and emotional wellness, uh, but your mental wellness, you got a lot of negative thoughts going on and self-defeating thoughts. 
uh, but then your spiritual wellness, however you define that, um, is less than than optimal. Then I saw challenges. Is that sort of a an accurate way of looking at it? Yeah, I think so. And I think one of the pieces, too, for um, clinicians working with veterans need, you know, need to understand is that approaching or uh, understanding the spiritual aspect of the veteran is not is not something foreign to the veteran. You know, when you serve on active duty, the, the resiliency program that that is built around the will of wellness has a huge component that deals with spirituality. Once again, spirituality is not boxed into religion. It can be a piece of religion can be a piece of that. But oftentimes when you look at it from the resiliency standpoint, it could be an appreciation of nature. It could be your ability to connect with the arts. And so um, so understanding for clinicians who normally don't work with the military, knowing that in that resiliency piece that service members get across the board, spirituality is something that's often acknowledged um, throughout their career and how that supports them and have positive coping mechanisms as well. So it's not foreign. They want to explore it in, in the counseling session. You know, and that's, uh, you, you, you bring up a great point in that it's not something that we're not familiar with. I think back to um, uh, really uh, all three of my, um, my combat deployments, uh, less probably my two operational deployments, but definitely my three combat deployments, um, you know, chaplains would pray. Uh, before a, a group went out, a you know squad went out on a patrol or something, and and they were there as I mean it, it was something that you know the old phrase no there's no atheists in foxholes right um, as um, as we become we veterans become more aware of our own mortality because we're faced with our mortality especially in more the some of the kinetic deployments um, we start to question what's on the other side of that veil right what's on the other side of that wall. Um, and so uh, I, I very much recall having personal conversations with my soldiers about uh, spirituality and religion and, um, you know, interpretations of the Bible or things like that. Um, and so you're right, it is, it may not be a major component of what they experienced while they were deployed, but it is a significant component. Uh, and I honestly don't recall anyone who, who, you know, stepped out before the chaplain prayed because everybody's like, you know, any port in a storm, anything that you know, could keep us safe. Um, and, and our chaplain even went out on patrols with us sometimes uh, and things like that. And so you're right. It's something that veterans are familiar with, uh, but it may be an aspect of something that um, that most mental health professionals, especially if not familiar with the military culture, are really aware of. Maybe they, they say, um, you know, that's, that's something that... Um, that's for chaplains or that's for the, that's for your pastor to take care of. I'm just here to take care of this aspect. Um, you know, I fix motors. I don't install windows kind of thing. Well, you know, for, for counselors that would say that I, I challenge them to um, look at the competencies, the servant competencies, the association, um, the, the association for spirituality and religious and values and counseling, because there's a guiding force. Um, there a division underneath ACA, and they provide the, the guiding competencies as to how counselors should address spiritual and religious and uh, issues surrounding values and counseling. And so I, I challenge, you know, counselors often 
to look at those um, look at those competencies and not only to look at those competencies, but to continue to grow in f finding continuing education courses that will support them in, in being able to provide that additional support. Because it's something that not only just veterans require, but I think just for people as a whole require that in the session. We just have to be a little bit more equipped in how do we manage it, you know, to the degree that we once again, we're remaining objective you know, non-judgmental and just guiding our clients throughout the process and not imposing our beliefs on the process, I think is the most important piece. Yeah, I think that's um, I, I, that's very important, uh, obviously, in, in any type of uh, mental health counseling. This is one thing that I've seen with, you know, maybe there are some colleagues in the community that are that have certain thoughts about, you know, war or military service that, you um, that they allow to creep into the counseling session. Um, I, I think we've all heard of that and, and definitely veterans have heard of that uh, and said, uh, you know, certain political views or anything like that, that um, uh, that is brought in that's really detrimental to um, the, the therapeutic relationship. So it's very important that we have to be able to understand where we're at uh, and then, you know, do no harm, right? You know, do no harm, um, the ethical, you know, concept of uh, benevolence and beneficence. So it's important for us to do that and kind of understand where we're at. Um, you know, where what our beliefs. I mean, this is something that we mental health professionals often, um, I think, are are you know outwardly focused. But you know, there could be a, something to say about uh, inward focus about where we're at and how we understand these things. Uh, so that we can provide the best care to our clients. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to keep in mind that it's their narrative, not ours. <laughs> and so in understanding that is that, you know, once again, how do they want to create or recreate a new narrative? Not to fit, you know, the scope of what we believe is true, but their truth. And um, I think sometimes, like I said, like you said, when you're dealing with things such as religion, you know, that's the first thing they say when you go to a party, or, you know, you're in a business, we don't talk about religion and we don't talk about politics. Okay, well, that's that's great for those places. But in counseling, this is their narrative. This is their story. So for me, everything is on the table. We don't take anything off the table because this is their story, not not my story. And I think this may be something that's very unique when it comes to veterans. I know that I've told you the story before about how I... Um, uh, I went to a talk with Irvin Yalam uh, probably a couple years ago now in which he had said that uh, most clients don't typically, typically talk about death or fear of death or mortality in their sessions. Um, but in my experience, both military uh, service members, veterans, and their spouses talk about it because it is the, a, a potential, right? It's, it's something that's more potential and something more likely to come up. I was actually talking to a colleague I think I talk more about mortality than I do, for example, uh, sexual dysfunction. You know, that's something that, you know, it's another huge aspect um, of, of veteran mental health. But, you know, they'll they'll talk about death all day long. Um, but but maybe this is another aspect that uniquely for veterans, there might be a a faith based or a spiritual based component of the sort of the therapeutic journey or the, you know, even understanding coming to their own awareness about that, um, that it may be different culturally from, from those that have never faced those kind of events that would cause you to question 
where am I at in this universe? Absolutely. You know, I want to add too that, you know, the second question that we asked looking at the religi religiosity and the um, reintegration is that, you know, individuals who actually had a higher level of religiosity had better reintegration. And so I thought that spoke volumes. So they, they had a decrease in reintegration struggles if they had a higher level of re religiosity score. And so what I found interesting in that was once again, that connection. I think you, you cannot go away from the connection that you have when you're in a, a group that's bigger than you. You know what I mean? When you're in a group. And so I kind of parallel the, um, the, those who have that religiosity and being in the military, right? Because you have, you're a part of something that's bigger than you. You're part of a group. You're very collaborative. You're working towards the same mission, the same vision, and you have this team cohesiveness. And so you look at individuals who are, you know, highly religious will find themselves a part of an organization that's bigger than them. They're collaborating. Hopefully they're collaborating within those <laughs> organizations. Right. But they're collaborating within those organizations and they're able to to not only um, find their space, but find their voice because they're all on one mission and one vision, whatever that organization is, is about. So I found that pretty interesting that religiosity actually held up pretty well with reintegration um, needs. So what I'm hearing, Danette, is, um, is, is isolation is not good for reintegration. Not at all. No. We, we, we kind of know that, right? But, but you, even where you talked about uh, female veterans early on, and I've heard the same stories too. Even as you were talking about it, I was thinking of a couple of conversations that I had uh, of which the female veteran went to, in this case, I think it was an active duty uh, doctor who told her exactly that, you know, um, so who's your husband and how can I help you support him? Uh, and she's like, you know, she gave the bird, <laughs> he got up and walked out and, and said, because she was a veteran. And so, but, but there's that isolation, uh, a sense of isolation in women veterans. Um, it's not intentionally systemic, but it's almost systemic, I guess, as part of the system. Uh, I had uh, one of my soldiers um, when we were in uh, Afghanistan, um, I reconnected with her and, and we were talking um, and, and I recommended that she reach out to the local you know, vet center of the VA and, and um, a little while back she said I had to go to um, a, a VA that was probably three hours away. It's a different region because that's where they had the women veterans um, programs for me. They didn't have it at my local VA where I was, uh, and, and, it, and it's a fairly decent sized Midwestern city. It's not like it's, you know, in the middle of nowhere. Um, and so I think there's, there's a level of isolation um, that if the veteran gets caught in that isolation, it causes more difficulties for reintegration. Absolutely, and I think, you know, we're, we're kind of like um, in this place where we're more, you know, the new age, where people identify more as spiritual than religious. And so I kind of thought that, you know, along the lines that that spirituality would really carry people, um, carry people a, a good bit of the way. But I think this study kind of spoke volumes to the fact that, you know, even though if you identify as more spiritual as opposed to religious, having that connection and being a part of an organization that identifies with your your core values and your beliefs can really help you as you transition um, to civilian life. 
just just even though they may not necessarily be veterans that are in that particular circle, but there are individuals that can identify with your core values and beliefs. So I think that that speaks volumes too to just what we know as counselors. You know, the support system, having a support system is, you know, one of the number one areas in along with counseling, helping counseling move forward. And so um, so so that that was pretty interesting to see that. You know, I can imagine that uh, someone with high spirituality, but a, a less of an inclination to connect with religion or, or less religiosity with a, you know, standard congregation or something that um like you said, they would have these questions, right? These unresolved questions about, am I a good person or the things that I did that were bad or, you know, these labels that I, that I know you hear and I hear veterans um, put on themselves. Um, but being part of um, a religious organization can help resolve some of that as well, can help them understand that, you know, yeah. others make mistakes and, and there's forgiveness if you're if you're sitting in your own place just having a conversation between you and, and, and God or your higher power or what have you you know you're, you're just sort of um, you know here in an echo chamber but if you're interacting with other individuals they can help resolve some of those concerns absolutely absolutely and so that's why I think it's so important for us as clinicians to to kind of get an understanding of where people are you know both spiritually and religiously and how can we incorporate, you know, once again, where they are, how can we incorporate that as effective coping mechanisms for them? Um, and if, if, if there is some, you know, moral injury, some religious or spiritual struggles, then how can we help them with, um, you know, creating that new narrative for them that fits where they are? Yeah, no, that is some, some very, uh, it's very interesting. Um, it definitely, uh, and as you were beginning to talk, the idea of spirituality and religion in transition, that's a big subject. And women in transition, that's a big subject. But putting those two things together, um, you know, helped narrow down a lot, I think, of, of a, a key aspect that may be missing in veterans' transition. Mm-hmm. No, I, and, and you're absolutely right about having a support network, um, and, and you, Danette, are definitely part of my support network and, and have been uh, for a couple of years now. And, and I really appreciate you coming on the show and kind of uh, sharing your, your insights. Uh, any last thoughts? Anything else you'd like to uh, kind of put out there? No, I just want to, uh, you know, say that when we look at, you know, women veterans, oftentimes we they see themselves as the um, invisible veterans. And it was just so interesting. I had to share this was so interesting. I was coming back from doing a conference at the Acervic Conference talking about women veterans. And so I was at the airport getting ready to leave out of Virginia. And so a young woman had on a T-shirt that you normally get, you know, for doing a fun run, you know, with your unit organization. And she had her two kids with her. And I said, um, well, I want you know, she was a Marine. And so I said, I want to tell you, thank you for your service. And so she looked at me and I said, no, I mean your service. I know that you are the Marine. She's like, so she gave me this big hug. She's like, oh, my goodness. I'm like, I know you're the Marine, not your husband. You're the Marine. And so I think just, you know, taking um, a different look at the roles that women play, not only, you know, OIF and OEF, but just throughout history, you know, women have um, done great things within our, um, within our country as far as providing service to the military and continue to do that. And so just acknowledging that and, um, and understanding that their needs may be a little bit different 
and how we can actually get to understand what their needs are so that we can support them in the way that they have supported us. No, you're, you're absolutely right. The, uh, the service of, of female veterans um, is, um, is often underreported. People have often asked me about you know, my thoughts towards women serving in combat. And, uh, and as I think I've told you, the, the argument about women in combat was solved uh, the minute, and probably even much, much longer ago than that, but I say the minute that my driver, uh, a female specialist, uh, dismounted behind me in a village in Afghanistan to make sure I didn't get shot in the back. Um, I served with, uh, and, and honestly lost, um, a, an, a non-commissioned officer in our company uh, who was uh, a wife uh, a mother, but also uh, an excellent soldier. And so you're never going to hear any arguments about me that women can't hack it in combat uh, because I've seen it there. And, and I think there's a, a big, um, it, like you said, they're, they're so silent that, they're not so silent, but they're, they're um, not heard so much that when somebody does actually ask them the questions, they're, they're eager to tell their stories. Mm-hmm. Um, the, and I'll link a I'll, I'll take the poll out because your, your survey is no longer active, but I'll put a link to that episode or that, uh, uh, that article in the show notes because um, it's still probably one of the third highest viewed um, articles on my website because it is specifically focused um, in all of the participants in women's veteran study. And it had huge um, um, uh, reach and, uh, and dissemination because... Uh, women veterans want their voice heard. And so uh, I thank you, Danette, for making sure that that's out there, that, that women veterans have a voice uh, and, uh, and that they're able to, to at least explain what they were as far as uh, part of the, the combat in the past, not just a couple years, but over the last three or four decades. Mm-hmm. So if people wanted to hear more information about what you do, do you do you have a website, Twitter, social media? What what can they? How can they reach out and and, and say you know? Hey, I want to hear more about what you're doing. Well, you know, I, I don't have a website. Um, I'm a little too old for Twitter, I think, but I need to get on Twitter at some point. <laughs> but um, I'm at link. I'm on LinkedIn. So if people want to connect with me professionally, um, they can find me on LinkedIn. Um, just Danette Patterson, and uh, you know they'll see they'll see me there. Um, but that's where they can find me uh, for the most part. Right now, I'm just currently doing some adjunct teaching. And so eventually I'll be at a university at some point. That's my that's my goal. And so but if they want to reach out to me, they can always reach out via LinkedIn. Better you than me developing the next generation of great counselors. I'd rather be the guy on the ground. Boots. <laughs> OK, Dwayne. <laughs> Thank you very much, Danette, for joining us today. And, uh, and, and listeners, uh, as always, thank you for taking the time to, to spend with us. We really appreciate it. And we'll talk to you next week. The struggle is real, found a piece and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-created enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Often in Tennessee, embrace my ability
So there you have it, folks. Another episode of Headspace and Timing, a show dedicated to changing your perspective on better mental health. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use the track Not Alone from his amazing album, Combat Medicine. Doc's a guy who's trying to bring the discussions about veteran mental health out of the darkness and into the light, and you need to check him out. Head over to therealdoctod.com to purchase the album and support the cause. You're not alone, veterans. Ever. The struggle is real, found a piece and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-created enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic tendency, embrace my ability Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. 
These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.